Good morning. I remind you that on the back of your bulletin, there, there's an outline with some blanks to be filled in so that we can journey together. Pastor Ed has slipped out, uh, but he's heard me say that uh, what a pleasure it is to be back with him. Many, for many years, he and I were colleagues, pastors in the South Carolina Conference, and we moved from church to church, and uh, we're good friends. And then I was sent off to Tennessee for 13 years. We were separated for a while. Now we're back together again, and what a joy it is to be uh, both parts of this uh, preaching team. That's a real joy. Believe it or not, uh, there was a time when Ed and I were young pastors. This is true. <laughs> Earlier, Ed said something about us being winners. I got a hunch the USC women are going to win tonight. <laughs> Let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. Here we are just two weeks from Good Friday and Easter, the primary Christian holiday weekend of the entire year. And as we approach that great weekend, particularly Good Friday, I always seem to remember a story told by my good friend Bill Henson. Uh, Bill has gone on to heaven now, but for over 20 years he was the pastor of the great First United Methodist Church in Houston. And Bill told me a story about his two grandchildren. Every summer they spent two or three weeks with him and his wife, Jean. And the parents told the grandparents always ahead of time, look, we don't want you to pamper these kids or spoil them. We want you to help us train them. The summer when the grandson was around seven and the granddaughter was about 10, they came to stay with Bill and Jean. And Bill had prepared a little chart that he attached to the refrigerator, and it had the names of the two kids, and then it had a space for each day, and they got a grade each day, either a plus or a minus, depending on whether they kept the rules, whether they did their chores, behaved themselves, were courteous and thoughtful. And then at the end of the week, Saturday was payday when they got their allowances, and the size of the allowance depended on whether you had pluses, which you got a bigger allowance, or minuses, which you got you less. Now, the young grandson was having a few behavior problems, and so as the week went by, he began to get some minuses, and his big sister, thoughtful, went to Bill and Jean and, and tried to make excuses for her, for her brother. And they said to her, honey, we appreciate your loyalty to your brother, but he's got to learn that good behavior gives good results, bad behavior, the opposite. Payday was coming, Saturday. On Friday night, after everybody had gone to bed, 
big sister slipped down to the kitchen and she erased her brother's name in front of all those minuses and wrote her own name. And then she erased her name in front of all those pluses and wrote his name. What a gracious thing for a loving sister to do. On a much grander level, Jesus did that for us. He took all our minuses upon himself and in exchange covered us with his pluses. That's exactly what St. Paul said to the Corinthians. God made him who had no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an exchange. All our minuses on him, all his pluses on us. There is a term to describe what Jesus did for us. And that word is atonement, atonement. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means a satisfaction or reparation for a wrong or injury. For example, back in 1942, in the midst of World War II hysteria, our government got worried that the Japanese Americans living out in the western part of our country might be disloyal might help Japan rather than America. And so 100,000 of them were rounded up and placed in internment camps for the duration of the war. Well, after the war was over, we realized that we had done wrong, that we had betrayed our own Bill of Rights. And so in the years that followed, we paid money to those Japanese Americans as an atonement for the wrong we had wrought upon them. Now, switch over to the spiritual context. Atonement here means the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin upon himself, making possible our reconciliation with a holy and righteous God. That truth stated in 1 John chapter 4 sounds like this. God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus bore the punishment we deserve. Now, on the day that Jesus was executed, there was one man who experienced that truth before anybody else. His name was Barabbas. Barabbas. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Let me set the scene for you. The year 30 AD. Jerusalem is part of an occupied province of the mighty Roman Empire. Rome had conquered the whole thing. And they were occupying the country of Palestine with their soldiers. And the Jews of Palestine hated the Romans. As any country would hate being occupied by another power. And so the Jews were constantly plotting subversion and espionage against these hated Roman occupiers. In order to placate the Jews, the Romans had a custom of releasing one Jewish prisoner every year during the Jewish festival of Passover. The crowd, the Jewish crowd was allowed to select the person to be released and the Roman governor usually approved. One of the prisoners being held was Barabbas. He was a violent, fanatical nationalist, sort of an early Taliban. He was pledged and committed to kill any Roman he could, any place, any time. He had been convicted of insurrection and murder. 
on the day that Governor Pontius Pilate was to announce the prisoner to be released, the crowd had gathered in front of his palace and all this was one fickle bunch of people. What a mob. How changeable. Just, just a few days earlier, they had been part of the crowd that welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem. They waved the palm branches, said, Behold, he who comes in the name of the Lord, Son of David, welcome. Oh, my goodness, but their loyalty to Jesus was, it may have been a mile wide, but it was about an inch thick, about an inch deep. And now, just a few days later, they are yelling charges against Jesus in front of Pilate. We have found this man subverting our nation, they said. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Christ, a king. Pilate hoped that the crowd would select Jesus instead of Barabbas to be released. Because he knew that the, the charges against Jesus was a framed, set-up job inspired by some Jewish leaders who were basically jealous of Jesus. But Pilate overestimated the popularity of Jesus, and he underestimated the popularity of Barabbas. The crowd had been urged by their Jewish leaders to choose Barabbas. Well, they didn't need much encouragement because anybody who would kill Romans was a hero in their eyes. And so they shouted, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. And when asked what to do with Jesus, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Pilate tried to reason with the mob. He said, look, I've examined him. So has King Herod. We, we find no charges that can stand up against this man. It, it makes no sense to execute him. But the mob just shouted back louder and louder, crucify him, crucify him. And with exquisite brevity, the gospel writer Luke tells us the outcome in just three words. Their shouts prevailed. Their shouts prevailed. You know, shouting mobs are still with us. Even in a democratic society, even on college campuses, which are supposed to be bastions of tolerance and free expression. Long ago, a French philosopher said, I disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That philosophy is part of America's birthright. That philosophy inspired the First Amendment to our United States Constitution. But if we continue to allow mobs to shout down unpopular speech, we will have forfeited an essential part of the American birthright. Back to Barabbas. Up until that moment, he was a dead man walking. I mean, his odds of being executed were greater than the very worst criminal on death row in Texas. He faced the horror of crucifixion, uh, the most diabolical, painful means of killing somebody that the Romans could dream up. In fact, it was so bad, they invented a new word to describe it. And that word in English is excruciating. The root words of that word are in the Latin excrucis, from the cross. The cross is where we got that word. We needed a word to describe something so intensely painful that one can hardly imagine it. 
and that is the cross. That's exactly what Barabbas was facing. But at the last moment, Jesus took his place and Barabbas walked. I wonder what became of Barabbas. He is never mentioned again in the Bible. And yet, he had to know about the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, he may have witnessed it. And just a few days later, rumors about Jesus' resurrection were everywhere. I like to think, and I've got no scripture to back me up here, I like to think that some brave member of the early church managed to find Oberavis and said, oh man, let me tell you something. Let me tell you about the man who died in your place. He didn't just save your life. He died to save your soul. He was not just a man. He was the son of God. And if you will repent of your sin and believe in him, he can change your heart and save your eternal soul from hell. And I like to think, though I have no scripture to back me up, that maybe old Barabbas said yes to that offer and got a new heart and a passport to heaven. What does all this have to do with us? All of us are like Barabbas without Christ. We are as good as dead in our sins without any way of curing our spiritual sickness. Without Christ, the best we could anticipate is maybe 70, 80 years fraught with inner discord and dysfunctional relationships and then death and then an eternity in hell. But then Jesus took our place. What he did on Calvary is as potent today as it was in the first century. I have a very simple Bible-centered faith. In fact, if you ask me to boil it down to four words, I can. Jesus died for me. My hopes of abundant life in this world and eternal life hereafter are based entirely on what Jesus did, especially on the cross. The Bible is a cross-centered atonement book. When, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming in his direction, he said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me try to put atonement in my own words. And, and I say, no, nobody's mind can get around the full mystery of atonement. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. But that's okay because as long as you can get your heart around it, that's what counts. But let me tell you, as far as my limited mind and vocabulary can take me toward encompassing the mystery. First, God loves us immensely, but hates our sin with a passion. God hates our sin in the same way that a parent hates the malignant tumor that threatens her child. That's how God feels about sin. No such thing as little sin, big sin. Because God is just and altogether righteous, he cannot ignore sin. Sin is a direct challenge to everything he represents. In this world, which God built on a just foundation, sin cannot be forgiven and set aside unless somebody pays for it. Only God can do that. Only God was great enough and good enough 
and sinless. He was the only one qualified to make atonement for the sins of the world. And Jesus, God in human form, came to planet Earth, was born as a baby in Bethlehem precisely for that purpose. On the cross, he paid for Barabbas' sin. He paid for my sin. He paid for your sin. Folks, we have a sin debt that we cannot pay. Now, usually when I say the word debt in our capitalistic society, a free enterprise, we think of money. And in fact, if I were to say, what is John worth? You immediately probably think of what are John's uh, net material monetary assets. But I'm not talking about monetary debt. I'm talking about moral debt. And there's a difference. The great theologian R.C. Sproul has given us a graphic example that helps us differentiate between the two. Suppose you go into Baskin-Robbins for a little ice cream treat. And there's a little boy in front of you, and he ordered a double-dipper cone of ice cream. The clerk brings it to him and says, that'll be $4.50. The little boy looks down and his lips begin to tremble a little bit and he says, but mommy only gave me $3. Now you're standing there behind him. If you've got even a partial of heart in you, you step up and say to the clerk, look, look, I'll cover the, the other $1.50. Give him the ice cream. Does the clerk have to do that? Yes, because your money is as good as his. All of it is legal tender recognized by the United States government. But let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's suppose that when the clerk brought the ice cream to the little boy, he just turned and ran out of the store. And she screamed at him, stop you little thief. And he runs out of the store and runs right into a great big cop who grabs the little fellow and brings him back into the store. Now, you're still standing there, and you've still got a heart, you know? So you may be tempted at that point to step up and say, look, look, I, I don't want the little fellow to be in trouble. I'll pay for his ice cream. Does the clerk have to accept your offer? No. Because now there has been a moral transgression. In fact, a crime has been committed. Her only choice is, shall I press charges or not? The little boy no longer has a monetary debt. He has a moral debt. Our debt before God is moral, not monetary. And our debt is infinitely worse than that of a little ice cream stealing boy. We are sinners by thought, word, and deed. We have not broken some flimsy laws of man that could be changed by legislature or court. Oh, no. We have committed treason against a holy, righteous God. The good news is that the Son of God has offered himself to satisfy our moral debt, to satisfy the justice of God, which cannot be violated. In Gethsemane, the night before he died for us, Jesus was in agony as he considered the horrible cup he must drink. And the worst part of it was not the pain of the cross, bad as it was. The worst part of what he faced was 
He had to taste hell for us. Because of our sin, for the first time in all eternity, God the Father and God the Son were separated for a period of time. That's why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that was the only way that God could set aside our sin and save our souls. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This whole glorious divine transaction is called atonement. Now, folks, the doctrine of atonement is under attack today, but that's nothing new. It was under attack in the first century, according to St. Paul. St. Paul said there were a lot of people around who considered uh, the message of the cross to be uh, foolishness. And today there are numerous, even theologians and seminary professors, who reject the idea of atonement. Uh, there's one professor who said that the very idea of God sending his son to die for the sins of the world is divine child abuse. And another professor in front of a large audience made this statement, and I quote, we don't need to hear about somebody hanging on a cross and blood dripping and all that stuff, end of quote. And when she made that statement, the interdenominational audience gave her a standing ovation. But thanks be to God, our beliefs are not dictated by some radical Bible-denying professor. Our beliefs are anchored to God's holy word, which says in 1 John, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The heart of the Christian faith is the declaration that the Son of God died in our place. How can you be sure that you're a Christian? How can you be sure that you are saved, that you are heaven-bound? You are if you can answer a sincere yes to the following questions. Do you admit that you have a sin problem you cannot fix by yourself? Do you believe that Jesus died in your place on Calvary's cross? Have you expressed your gratitude by inviting Jesus to be the absolute leader of your life? If your answers to those questions are a sincere yes, on the authority of this book, you are children of God, saved and heaven-bound. Dr. Doug Meeks is a seminary professor. And a few years back, he went on a lecture tour to Korea, South Korea, speaking at universities and seminaries. And when he was in the capital city of Seoul, Someone said to him, uh, Dr. Meeks, while you're here in Korea, you ought to have a suit tailored for you. These Korean tailors are the best in the world, and they can make a suit for you at a very reasonable cost. Dr. Meeks thought that was a good idea, and he noticed across from his hotel there was a tailor shop. So he went into the shop, and he met the senior tailor there who was an old man. And the tailor introduced himself as Smitty Lee. And Dr. Meek said, nah, now that Lee is a, certainly a Korean name, but that's Smitty. 
That sounds American to me. And the tailor said, you're right. Said many, many years ago when I was a young man, I was in the Korean army during the Korean War, and my unit was attached to an American infantry battalion. And I became very good friends, almost like brothers, with an American whose last name was Smith, and they called him Smitty. We shared the same foxhole many, many days and nights. And then one night when the communist Chinese were storming our lines, the enemy threw a grenade into that foxhole, and Smitty dove on top of it. It blew him apart, but my life was saved. And afterward, I decided, since that man died for me, I'm going to live for him. So I had my first name changed officially to Smitty. In less than two weeks, we will commemorate Good Friday, the day when Jesus died on a cross for us. On that cross, he saved the life, not just of Barabbas, he saved souls the world over. He saved you and he saved me. Our names are written on that cross. Therefore, with hearts full of gratitude, we must live for him. In just a moment, we are going to sing our closing hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And as we sing that hymn, I'm going to invite you to slip down to this altar and either stand or kneel and utter a brief prayer that sounds like this. Jesus, you died for me. My name is written on your cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. When you have sung that hymn, the congregation may be seated, and if there are still people coming to the altar, the organist will continue to play as long as there are folks coming. Remember, that brief prayer is something like this. Jesus, you died for me. My name is written on your cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us stand and sing, and I invite you to come.